This is Radiance Tape Number JD140, a message by Jim Durkin, entitled, Courage to Deal with Sin. I'd like to bring to you this message this morning. It's a little bit on the heavy side in that I don't personally like to preach these kinds of messages because sometimes it gives the people an idea that I think the church is going that way, and I don't believe the church in the majority is going that way. As a matter of fact, I think it's coming back another way. However, before times are finished, and that could be very soon, because I think there's going to be a very fast work of righteousness on the earth, and then some very terrible things are going to happen on this earth, there are definitely some danger signs existing in this church and every church. And therefore, I'm going to preach this message because I believe it's a continuation of what I've been preaching the last couple of weeks. And I'd like you to take your Bibles today and follow with me as much as you can. Some things I'll tell you just not to worry about too much and others to listen to carefully as far as reading with me is concerned. You see, one of the great problems we have is many times not reading the Word of God carefully and therefore drawing from the Word of God lessons for ourselves today. We read merely like certain excerpts from it. We'll read like the 23rd Psalm, which is a very beautiful psalm, very powerful, and it's helped me many, many times of my life to be stabilized by simply, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want one of the great promises of God. But along with it, we must remember that the early church, the apostolic church, and in our minds, unless we thoroughly think it through, we consider that that apostolic church was really completely together. They were moving powerfully in God, and nothing could come in there that could hinder or hurt them in any way, but they just moved with great signs and wonders and miracles. And for sure, they had signs and wonders and miracles that operated with them in their congregations. However, Along with the working of the Spirit of God, always Satan is working. And it's one of the great mistakes that people make, whereas we strongly take a position against stating that Christians who are doing their best to follow God and they've submitted to being filled with the Spirit and as much they know the ordinance of God, we are opposed to the kind of teaching that says these people can be filled with many demons and um, even thousands of demons sometimes the idea is. Do not believe or teach that. However, that is not the same thing to say that Satan is not working on the church at all times. He constantly is working to bring men to a place of ruin if he possibly can. Now, this message is primarily directed to the eldership, but it's directed almost as much to the people generally because it affects them. The reason why I'm directing it to the eldership, not only here, but those who might hear this tape also, is because if there is a weak eldership, then it leaves the people unprotected, and therefore they are not able to be delivered from these things as they should be. Now, I am going to turn to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, the Apostle John here is writing to a present day church, a church that exists at that time. And you must understand that these churches that he writes to are not imaginary churches, but practical, day-by-day working churches that exist at that time. 
Churches which have received the teaching of the apostles, churches which have had a godly ordained eldership set aside by these apostles who looked at them and they laid hands on them and they charged them in the same way that you've seen people charged here. There were men like Timothy in the early church, though at this time some of them had been killed, many of them had been killed. As a matter of fact, most of the apostles were now gone, John remained. There may have been some in India or something of this nature. There were second-generation apostles. They were there preaching. So we're talking about a church very close to the very happenings that the Gospels speak about. The Lord Jesus Christ was written about 90 A.D., and he died somewhere around 33, 34 A.D., something like this. So we're talking about barely 50-some years before. And I'm thinking of my own life. I'm 52. So it'd be like remembering back to my childhood. It'd be events that many of the people of that day could remember, that some of them perhaps knew about personally, or they had talked to those who had seen it, said, I have seen the Lord Jesus with my own eyes. He exists. He died on the cross of Calvary. He was raised the third day. We talked with the apostles. They saw the resurrection. He's seen by 500. I talked with some of them. See, real events. We're not talking about something like, well, this was 2,000 years ago. This was real events. The Lord Jesus came to this earth, lived on it, died, rose again. We saw him. All right. Now, here's a church called a church of Thyatira. Second chapter and the 18th verse. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says thus, I know your deeds, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. There's a commendation to that church that existed at that time. Now, they had not forgotten the Lord Jesus in the sense of service, work, labor, and love. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, notice something that happened to this church. Because back in Paul's day, there would have been a different thing done, and Paul would have stood up to do it, although in his day he found already conditions existing because of weak leadership in the local church that were allowing things to happen. In other words, were urging the people on to love, to faith, to perseverance, to... But some kind of thing had come into their thinking which they were not able to do the hard thing that had to be done. And the hard thing that had to be done was not only to urge the people on to love, faith, and perseverance, which seems to be more, once we're Christians, seems to be a kind of a natural thing for us to do, say, oh yes, we want to go on. But there's also a hard thing to do. And that hard thing concerns itself with what you do when sin comes into the church. How do you deal with it? Is it dealt with on a light basis? Do you say, well, I know they did it, but They've been here a long time, and basically I, I think they're good people, and, uh, you know, so maybe if we don't disturb them, besides that, they have a lot of influence and a lot of friends, and if we really do something to them, that would cause these friends to be disturbed, and we don't know what they might leave, and they could, see, so you start rationalizing what needs to be done. Now, that doesn't mean the minute that a person commits some sin, you say, okay, excommunication. I'm not talking about that. But you'll see what happens 
when you don't deal with sin on the level that God tells you to deal with sin. So if a person is in sin, they need to be exhorted about that sin, need to be stopped, need to be turned around, told to repent, and if they don't, then proper procedures have to be taken against that person. And this is not only true of the people, but it is especially true of the leadership. If the leadership is not dealt with vigorously in the matters of sin, then as sure as the sun rises in the morning, more sure than that, the church will corrupt itself and be destroyed. Now notice what this church did. And you've got to see that if you are looking at this church, says, I know your deeds. So you're looking at this church also. Now the Lord sees it clearer than we can see it. But we can see it pretty clear if this church was like this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So here was a church just powerfully bringing forth good works. But he said, I'm telling you something. I have something against you. In that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she was not a prophetess. She should have been stopped. This woman should have been brought into a proper place. In other places, there were men, the doctor of the Nicolaitans, concerned itself with another kind of doctrine. We'll deal with that later. Calls herself a prophetess, and because you tolerated her, notice the implication here, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Now, she didn't lead astray people on the street or lead astray wicked men and women in the church. He says, these are my bondservants that she leads astray. In other words, here is a person, woman or man this could be. In this case, it happened to be a woman. Woman or man, that you give a place of honor by one or two methods. One method of giving a place of honor, you let the person be ordained that should not be ordained, or maybe you ordain them rightly and later on they fall away from the truth and you allow them to continue. You do not deal vigorously with that sinful condition. You have given them a place of honor, and you say to all the people, look at this man or this woman. They are in a place of honor, and you can depend upon their teaching. They will lead you aright. They will not lead you astray. And the people, being sheep, see, that's our mentality, and it's a right mentality. It's not like, wait a minute. No, we don't want any mentality like that. We look at that person, we say, teach me. Now, a second way by which a person comes to a place of honor is they take a place of honor. They rise up and they say, I am a prophet or I am a prophetess. Now, if that person is not a prophet or a prophetess, for us to be quiet when they claim to be something is to tacitly agree that they are what they say they are. And if the eldership allows that person to stand up and say, I'm a prophetess, and they See, they might be thinking, well, I don't really think so, or well, I don't know about that. I, uh, but they don't say anything. Then that person emerges, and certain people in the church, even though the eldership has not positively said this person is a prophetess or a prophet, they begin to look toward this person, and then they begin to prophesy, and the next thing they start drawing disciples to themselves. And they are, to be sure, sometimes the weak, sometimes those can be easily beguiled, but they also sometimes can be a different class of person that you would not believe could be drawn in and beguiled. She leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now notice, they were at this high place in the Lord, and then they were brought down to commit acts of immorality 
and to eat things sacrificed to idols with the full knowledge of what they were doing destructive. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. In other words, that offspring which comes out of this unholy alliance of this prophetess who is no prophetess, but she's turned to immorality and ungodliness, and these bond servants which have fallen into sin with her, and then whatever alliance that produces offspring, that will produce offspring, corruption throughout the church, then the Lord here says, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Then he says to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, see, some resisted it, thank God, and have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. In other words, keep yourselves pure, little children. Now, reading something like that, we say, well, how could that have happened there? But thank God it won't happen here. Now, it will not happen here, if the eldership charge them here, any elders that listen to my voice or any elders that I could ever speak to, say, listen, if you don't keep on your toes about the church of God, Satan is continually, we'll see this from some other scriptures, trying to move into the church weird doctrinal positions that will corrupt and destroy the church. All right, now, in the book of Corinthians, I just want you to take a, a kind of a brief overlook here. Turn me 1 Corinthians, please, and notice at one time, church where Paul had spent his, the early days of the church, he founded this church, he labored with it, he planted good teaching into it, he raised up a godly eldership, the church grew very large, apparently, traditionally, at least, before he left, and then he turned it over to the eldership, was gone for long periods of time, not able to keep in touch with them. And here's what happened to that church because the eldership was not able to stand up for what it knew to be the truth. And also the people were not able to keep in touch with or hold on to that which they knew to be the truth. See, something is ministered, apostolically planted in a church that here's the truth. Now, a couple of years ago, we went through a period of time which has been leading up to it for a couple of years before that. I call it the big put-down. It was like all the things which had been built into the church then were laughed at, like, oh, man, that, the principles. Oh, man, the faith pictures. Oh, man, this stuff. Oh, everything was a big put-down. We just put it all down. Here's the new knowledge, which is danger of this. Paul said he laid a foundation. Now, that's my work to lay a foundation. That foundation remains intact. We'll go on to build a building upon which the church will emerge in these last days and be a solid, right church before the Lord. But tear away that foundation, try to build something on it, and no matter what you build, it will continue to crack apart and crumble. And that's exactly what was happening here. Now, you'll see this as we go on in the Corinthian church. And Paul said, I'm coming back to deal with this issue and put this thing back on a right foundation again. All right, in 1 Corinthians 1.12, we read these words. Paul had gone on here saying about that he had not baptized anybody, and he was glad he had not, lest someone would say he had baptized him in his own name. 
11th verse, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, there are quarrels among you. Now, that's not to be. No schism in the church. There are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you save Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now, here this great church, which had been flowing in unity, now is divided along secular lines. And you, to be sure, if you went to that church, because they were not able to meet in great halls, they, they, the church was under persecution, so there's no such thing as a church that would hold 15,000, 16,000 people. Some think there were that many in Corinth, and some think even more. I'm not able to judge that, but it's probably a very large, very influential church, and they were meeting many places throughout that great city. No great halls, though, because they were not allowed to meet that openly. But here this great church was in God. But now this church was no longer a great church. For the first time, they were dividing along different lines. And one was saying, well, we hold to what Paul taught originally. We're, we're there. Another group said, no, we, what Paul taught, yeah, it's okay, I mean, really. But we're over here with Peter. Well, no, we've heard Apollos preach. This is, and you'll find the churches were meeting in different parts of the city, church as, not the church anymore. They were dividing along lines and saying, we are not with you because you hold to the teachings of Paul, but we hold to the teachings of Apollos. And actually the teachings of Paul and Apollos were exactly the same teachings in their basics. But it was in their own minds, people looked for a reason to divide against each other, be separated, break down the unity which is in Christ, and they find, and one of the greatest easiest reasons to latch on to is to line up with some man and say, I follow this man. Now there's a teaching also coming, which is not new by any means, but it's beginning to resurrect its ugly head, and one of those teachings takes this line. See, this man Paul, by the way, has always been attacked, because Paul was almost the Lord's chief lieutenant as far as the New Testament is concerned. He literally wrote the great majority of the doctrinal things, the moral things, the way to live, the, all the important things about the Lord Jesus Christ were written by Paul. The doctrine was explained by him. The other apostles had other things to do, and they did it. They did what they were supposed to. But Paul was chosen by God to lay out the majority of the new, the new covenant to us. So this man is attacked above all men. And he's been attacked all down through the ages, and now, in these last days, even men who should know better are laying the attack on Paul again. Just recently, I was sitting down with a man talking. This man has a burden for souls, says, and I don't doubt that he does, but he's in serious danger. Said he has a burden to see people one to Jesus Christ all over the world. So he's got a wide burden. Wants to build up teams of people just out preaching the gospel everywhere. So that was very good. I said, will these teams of people finally be brought to a place where there are local bodies growing up and the people can grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth? And he said, no, we're not going to do that. And I mentioned to him, I said, why are you not going to do that? That was Paul's main emphasis. He said, we do not believe the teachings of Paul were right. Now, I tell you, when you attack this, then you open yourself up to grievous error. He said, we receive only the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as our teaching. Well, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ 
were meant to be foundational words. But he committed his apostles. The Bible says in the book of Acts, this was what Jesus began to do and teach. It took the apostles to finish the explanation so that we, coming later, would be able to read the words of the Lord Jesus and then understand them in a complete and right way. Remove this new, the rest of the New Testament and you leave yourself in a very peculiar place in relationship to the way you can interpret the words of the Lord Jesus. And many people abandoning the epistles, abandoning the rest of the New Testament, taking only the words of the Lord Jesus, have been led into extremely grievous errors because they have interpreted those things to suit themselves and use them to divide the church and separate men against the other. Now, these people who follow men should not be that way. You know, that's why I thank God for what's happening here in Humboldt County. There is a coming together of godly men, a discipline beginning to come into churches. Real offenders are being dealt with. The ones that are lesser offenders, in other words, ignorant, foolish people, are being dealt with on a private basis and beginning to repent, straighten their lives up, and the churches are beginning to purge and purify themselves. There are still some serious problems, but those will be dealt with. Secondly, a man committed sin in that church that Paul said was not so much as heard of, named among the Gentiles, that a man should take his father's wife. Now here again is an amazing thing. See, if this were to happen among us, we would say, ah, I hope we would say that. See, that it would be a shocking thing, not like, well, we realize that, see, too much sophistication is a bad thing. People should not be sophisticated regarding sin. In other words, they should not be able too much to cut it up and say, well, I know it's sin, but still, when you consider the ramifications of it, we can therefore make allowances. See, the minute you start reasoning about sin instead of dealing with sin, the minute you start saying, well, I know it is, but still, it seems to me that instead of going back to the Word of God and saying, now look, a grievous sin has been committed, Lord, show us what to do. How do we handle this particular situation? What do we do with it now? All right. Paul says what you should do with it, since that man has done this terrible act, should put that man out. Put that wicked man out from among you. But the elders could not do it. Now, why? I don't know. Maybe this man was popular, or maybe he was... I don't know what. Maybe he was a leader. That's not the point. But the man did a grievous, heinous sin, not so much as named among the Gentiles, and therefore certainly should not be named in the church of God. And yet the elders, the deacons, the leadership, or maybe it's the rebellion of the people, maybe a bunch, a group of them people stood up and said, we stand with this man. He's our friend. And then the elders saying, well, man, there's such a group of people there. What? See, it's like that in the Old Testament. Here was... The brother, Moses, goes up to be with the Lord. Aaron is left to watch over the people. After a period of time, the people come to Aaron and say, we know not what has become of this fellow Moses, been gone for some 30, 40 days. Now make us gods and let's return to Egypt. Instead of Aaron being able to stand up to them like Moses was, that's why Moses was the leader, Aaron was not the leader, and had he not been in that particular place where he was able to repent and God got him in a right place, he would have been slain with the rest of those who committed those terrible acts of immorality. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Aaron turns around, makes a god of gold and silver, and turns around lies to Moses and said, we threw this in here and this calf jumped out and so forth and so on. See, the mentality, the man has sunk to the level not only of 
weakness before the people, which allowed them to go on and sin, implication being that he should gladly lay down his life for what was right. Now, he's not willing to do that. He should not be in that place of leadership. And therefore, he was not in that place of leadership. Moses never again left him in that place of authority over the people. He could not stand up to that kind of pressure. And so then he failed, and you know the rest of his sons also failed. Terrible thing happened to them because of his own sin. He was so weak, he produced no strength in those men, whatever. So here Paul says, put that man out from among you. All right, now, sometimes when we have to put a person out, I, you know, I can almost feel the heart of God's people. You love someone. You just, you really care for them. You, you've, you've had them over to your house for dinner. You've sat down. You've had good fellowship together. It's been a rich time of experience. Maybe they've been leaders, which several times in our own work, there have been leaders that had been dealt with summarily in these issues because they would not really repent and they just went on in their ways. And then finally we have to drop that hammer which says, go from among us. You have no more place of fellowship with this body of people. And you can almost feel it. Why did you do that? Why did you send us? Man, shouldn't we have shown mercy? Should... The greatest mercy, friends, you can ever show to anyone is to do for them what God says to do to them. See, if God says, put this wicked man out, that's the greatest mercy you can ever show. This man, if he had been allowed to stay there, now let me show you what would have happened. It would now have opened the door. Paul had tolerated this. It would have opened the door for every kind of immorality that you could possibly name. They would have gone on from step to step and step. There would have been no stopping it. Paul ordered this man put out. The eldership there heard him, put the man out. And in 2 Corinthians, we see the man coming back, repentant, broken. And then they write him and say, Paul, what should we do? He's come here and he's repented. He's, he's clean as thing. Paul said, then receive him. Don't lay too heavy a burden on him. You'll break him completely. See, the point was, the greatest mercy Paul could have shown, if those elders had had their way at that time, and the church had had its way at that time, that man would have become hardened in his deceit, and he would have gone on to be destroyed. He would have taken many others down with him. Now, that's what the Lord has against this church in Thyatira, that they suffered that woman who called herself a prophetess to remain there. They did not deal with her in a proper way. She did remain there. She kept on seducing God's bondservants and leading one after the other astray, and no one was strong enough to stand up and say, that woman must be dealt with. Those people must be stopped. Could not do it. And the result was that church fell into a place. And then God says terrible words. I will kill her. I will kill her, and I will kill them, and I will kill their offspring, and I will... Heavy, heavy words. See? All right. Now, this church is not just finished in that one particular place. Take a look at me, 1 Corinthians 5. We'll start with the ninth verse. Finishing after this thing of putting this man out. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now notice that word. That's a heavy word. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, if a person is not a brother or a sister, does not claim to be, fine, we can associate with these people. Now, we don't associate with them for the fact of learning their ways, but we associate with them for the, for the purpose of winning them to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But you take a strong stand. No, this is wrong. Oh, well, man, I do a little idolatry. Isn't that right? No, it isn't right. It's wrong. See, here's what's right. You should serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul and spirit and all of the right. See, and we preach the gospel to them, the ministry, and finally, those who are called to life begin to see the nature of their sin, abandon their sin, come to Jesus and are saved. But now, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. Now, this takes a kind of stiffness of spirit and kind of intestinal fortitude that many of us do not want to manifest, especially if we have an emotional tie with that person. What if that person is a friend? What if that person is a relative? What if that person is a son or daughter or a mother or father? Well, it makes no distinction. See, and that becomes the hard thing, and we have to hear the word of God on that, or we get all confused here. But this is my friend. But you don't understand. This is my... The greatest mercy you can ever show is to do for that person what God says to do to them. Say, no, I'm going to. I will not. Actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, I have taken the point of view here, and you're going to have to judge for yourself whether it's right or not, whether I'm becoming weak, and therefore God will have to show me what to do. I sat down with a so-called brother who I knew to be an immoral person or a swindler. And we've had a cup of coffee together, or we've had a meal together. But it's always been for the purpose trying to point out to that person where they were or what they were doing. Not to simply sit down and say, see, what it's talking about here is not to associate. In other words, oh, let's have fellowship, brother. Yes, why? Oh, yes. Oh, isn't it wonderful to serve Jesus together? Oh, yes, it is. But one person is talking about serving Jesus from one point of view, and the other one has a completely erroneous point of view. He's off here living in idolatry or immorality or something else, and no word of warning. Come away from that. That's evil. See, and then you don't go back the next day and say, well, let's go out and have coffee again. Let's uh, meet every day. No, there has to be that point where you're saying, brother, I know you name the name of Christ, but I tell you, you're not living right. Now, you need to change. You need that. Okay. That's a hard thing to do. That's what happened to these elders. I think that man that did this thing was not some kind of a weird, flaky kind of person. I think the man that did this probably was a very well-known, well-liked individual. Because if he was really a weird, flaky kind of person, I think the elders would have got right on it. They said, oh, get this guy out of here. Because they might probably want him out of there anyhow. But I'm saying... This man had some influence, very likely. He was well-known, or he was related to a family that was well-known or something, and committed this evil act. And the people stood back there for whatever reason and said, we can't deal with this issue. Jezebel, I'm a prophetess. I don't think she is, do you? No. Well, maybe we ought to... Well, I don't know. A lot of people like her, and she's, she's got a lot of friends on her side, and I... The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. If you fear the face of men... Then I tell you something, you'll be brought down to ruin sooner or later. It's just a matter of time till you are. 
You must not fear the face of men. Amen. Now, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Can you on hear what's happening in this church? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own soul. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And King James says, thinks it says in your spirit, in your body, which are God's. I'm not sure there. But, does it say that? Yes. Okay. The point that I make here is not only, see, I don't know if which one caused which one here. But because he lists them in an order, possibly he had to deal with the most serious one first, or maybe that simple was first in order when he heard of it. This happened first, and now look what's happening, Paul. Somebody evidently wrote him a letter and said, Paul. This is going on in the church, and you never taught things like this. Now, how come this is being allowed? Okay, so what is happening now is there are people here that are doing one of two things. It's not clear from the text which. Most scholars believe, because of the other admonitions now against idolatry, most scholars believe that these men that's being referred to here were now going up to temple prostitutes. And they were going back to their old worship ways, because in those days... There were laws against adultery, laws against fornication, even in many countries that had no knowledge of God as the Word of God teaches him. But still, they had this idea that if you have a wife, you must be in this relationship to her, she must be in this relationship to you. But they knew the nature of men, so their religions then reflected that nature and gave them outlets for it. So then they would have these temple priestesses who are nothing more than religious harlots, and they, then men could go into them, go through certain religious duties, and then they would lay with these temple prostitutes. Also, there was a great deal of prostitution in these countries because immorality was everywhere on every hand, and that's what Paul warned about. The immoral person, you'd have to go out of the world to be away from that, because that's, that's all around us there. But nevertheless, these people very probably had, on the one hand, here's the religion of the Lord Jesus, they receive him as their Savior, and yet somehow, because they have not gone into Christ as they should, somehow because there's not a strong eldership saying, do not do these things, that eldership gets over here and is weak, and well, I don't know, I feel that, well, I, uh, and the next thing, these things now crept in the church, so men are saying, well, I, I don't see why that if I, if I give my heart to the Lord Jesus here, I don't see why for the sake of my family or for the sake of, uh, my friends, or that if I, whatever it was, they now could do this and this. So here they would be up here at the church worshiping God on whatever days they had set aside for services there, and then over here at the temple, the lay with prostitutes. And he said, do you not understand that if you do this, you have made yourself one flesh with that harlot? Can I take the members of Christ and make them the members of the harlot? Do you take away your members from Jesus and give them here? 
Do you not know that every sin a man does is outside of the body, but the man who commits adultery or fornication, he sins against his own soul? I'm preaching a message against the grim reality that Satan is constantly working on the church to bring those immoralities into the church or to take the people of God and say, okay, we serve God here acceptably, say, on Sunday, but also we get misled and led away and we're able to do these things over here. And we say, oh, well, would that really happen here? I'm telling you, it happened in the Corinthian church, and they were very shortly removed from the Lord Jesus himself. Here was a living apostle writing them and saying, what are you doing? Don't you remember the things that I... Well, yes, I know, but see, that's what Paul teaches. But on the other hand, I don't adhere to his teaching so much anymore. I'm really more into what Apollos teaches. Well, I'm really into what the law teaches. Well, I'm really into what... When you begin to divide up Christ, and with that, what they really said was, I'm into what I teach, and I'm going to do what I please, and no one is going to stop me, and no one was courageous enough to stop him. Now, that's not all that was going on in this particular church. This is the Corinthian church. Chapter 6, brother goes to court with brother. Says the church ought to judge these matters. Now, there are wise men in this body of believers here. We've got good, sound, sensible elders and good, sound, sensible deacons and good, sound, sensible men that are not particularly elders or deacons, but they're sound, sensible men. And if a brother has an argument with a brother, I don't care what that argument is. It can be settled by a council of those men sitting down and listening to that. But that's just this one congregation. As this thing progresses in the county of Humboldt, and it's available to us to have leaders from other churches that we see are sound, solid men of God, we're able to call those elders together and say, sit with us in council. We have a case that's difficult for us to judge. Listen to us. Help us make a right judgment about this, because a brother's at war with a brother. And I think, no doubt, as we, many men here, are in business, I think it's just a matter of time until men from another congregation are in business, and somehow you meet on a transaction, next thing you're into an argument with each other. Well, you said you would pay me this. No, I didn't. I said I would do this if you would do this. No, what you said was this. And pretty soon that thing begins to get a little more intense and a little more intense, and someone says, if you don't pay me, I'm going to sue you. I'll take you. Paul said, do you dare show before the world that you are going to take a brother to court and stand up before that unsaved judge and all those people that are looking on and saying that this man is a liar. He, by you, don't call me a liar. You're the liar. And you hear this unsaved judge is sitting there. <laughs> You're the followers of the Lord Jesus, are you? He's not saying that. He's judging very solemnly with the law. You're the followers of the Lord Jesus, are you? People looking. You liar, you! Aren't those, uh, those church members who talk about unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace and that we should all be one and that we're all going to be together and that we're all... Ho, 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 ho. Okay. Now, rightly, Al Tomlin said it's the public who's our judge. Paul said, you take cases like this, don't you have some wise men in your church? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? And you can't judge a simple little matter like this, but it ends up in a court of law someplace that... Well, that was happening in the court. So how could that happen in a church? Very simply, very simply, it happens this way. Somebody doesn't stand up and say, Brother, that's wrong. Stop. 
I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't do that anymore. That's how it happens. It's that simple. Well, now, I feel I have a right. You can do anything you want, but I'll tell you before God, if you do, this scripture will be put into faith. Okay, now let's go a little further. They use their knowledge selfishly and thereby hurt weaker men, chapter 8. Now, it's a wonderful thing to have knowledge. I, I think it's a glorious thing that people have good minds, and most of our people do have pretty good minds. It really just blesses me in that area that I can take some complex subject and talk about it, and most people are able to grasp it. But it talks here, eighth verse, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do not eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, see, this man manifested the love of Jesus Christ. He said, I will not do those things. If that makes my brother fall, then I simply won't do it. But see, this is, well, we have knowledge. We know this isn't wrong. Well, if this dummy over here doesn't understand it, that's his stuff like. I have knowledge in Christ, and I, his knowledge puffs up. Charity, love, builds up. So what we want is that kind of love attitude toward this. I know it's all right for me to do a certain thing. See, I don't drink wine. Just, I don't do it. Somebody says, well, brother, I can prove from the Word of God you can drink, right? You can. I tell people, the Bible does not say teetotaling is the way. But there's a reason why I've come to the conclusion I don't drink wine. Because I've seen what happens if I drink wine. Then people look at me and, oh, you drink wine, do you? And the next thing, here it goes on, it's what I've told the girls. Careful how you dress, girls, especially if you're in leadership. Very careful how you dress. See? I, the Bible says, doesn't give any admonition. But some time ago, some people, well, it was many years ago now, 25 years ago, I guess, they wanted me to write up a series of laws for the church as to how long women's dresses should be and how long the sleeves and the collar should be and uh, what kind of hairdress they should have and... Uh, write a law up like that because there's no law in scripture like that. What it does say is a woman should dress chastely and modestly. Now that's a that's something that every woman knows in her heart when she's there. If she gets on praise about to the Lord, she knows when she's chaste. She knows when she's modestly dressed. Now, the Bible does not talk too much about how men should dress because men do not have generally beautiful bodies. They're not generally sexual objectives, which, you know, say, oh, well, I don't want to be a sex object. Well, amen, that's right. That's a right-on thing. But I'm going to tell you, as far as the world is concerned, because sin is in it, most women are sex objects. You just have to understand that that's the way it is. Now, therefore, any woman, give them a little thought, knows that. And sometimes when she wants to, quote, turn on a man, she'll shorten her skirt a little bit, or set in a way or slide around a little bit so the skirt will come up over her knee in a right way or something like that, or she'll look at a man in a certain way. And I've heard some men talk, oh, did you see how she looked at me? 
Well, yeah, that's right. See, that's a message like boom, 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 see, like that. Now, I'm telling you something. If the leadership, therefore, does not dress chastely and modestly, women, then those following you, like if I take one glass of wine, some people take 50 glasses of wine, then the next thing, they're destroyed by my knowledge. See, I say, well, yes, I know that this Bible does not teach teetotaling in the absolute sense. But for me, I teetotal. Now, when I was in Germany, there was a situation in which I broke that rule one time. I took a little bit of wine like this because I was dealing with a man who was a Catholic, he was a born-again man, and we were talking with him. He drinks wine as a part of his beverage thing, and I had one small glass of wine with him only so I could break that barrier and we could talk. He said, what do you see wrong with wine? Can't you not uh, minister? Can't you say? And I felt, all right, here's a case where I know I can do this. So I did that, explained it carefully to the brothers. They said, we know what you did. We understood it. They, all right, that was all to what? Now, that's the first glass of wine I've had outside of communion in probably 25, 30 years. Now, I probably will never take another one again, or if I do, it will be under exactly that kind of a situation. But I do not get into these things simply because I cannot use my knowledge, see, which I know I can do something, to overthrow the weakness of some brother who doesn't have that kind of knowledge, and he takes a glass of wine, to him he's got an alcoholic, something's still working in him, and the next thing he's laying out in the gutter drunk, I said, well, that isn't my fault, man. <laughs> He's a, some dummy. That's his problem. I, I did all right. I got scripture proof to show that I'm, I'm doing all right, see? Or if a woman dresses immoderately, immodestly, and some man comes up toward her and he looks at her and the next thing he's thinking adulterous or immoral thoughts toward her, she said, well, I don't have any thoughts like that in my mind. I don't know what kind of a dirty old man that is. Well, now that's that kind of reason is extremely dangerous for the Church of Christ. So the Bible says to each of us, don't use your knowledge to make weak your brother. If you do, you hurt and destroy him. Don't do that. And I think many, many times in this world, I don't even think it's a matter of knowledge sometimes. I think even sometimes there it's a matter of ignorance on our part. We just don't see that something is wrong. We go ahead and do it unless we really, we really hurt someone else by. So this church was doing this in a regular way. All right. They used their knowledge. So chapter 10, they had fallen into some form of idolatry. And I don't know exactly what this was, but it was something heavy enough that Paul gave them some pretty heavy admonitions about it. First verse, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized, and Moses trying to tell them, man, they all came the same way, they fulfilled all the ordinances, they were all Israelites, they were all, that's the point, cloud, of course, being symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And they all ate the same spiritual food, they partook of the ordinances, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness, now, these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Neither let us act immorally as some of them did in 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, tempt the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, for they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the world come. Then it goes on to say, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. No temptation is taking you, verse before, but such is common to man. Now, the 11th verse, they had the 11th chapter, they had debased the communion. The 12th chapter, they had allowed the gifts of the Spirit to be used improperly. They were even cursing Christ. And in the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, they had allowed those to come into the church who had denied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, how could, how could that happen in an apostolic age church? I'm, I don't think I wish to comment on that because I'm not sure how it happened. I believe it happened the way I said. If there was weakness, I know there had to be. I know the elders did not stand up strong enough to that issue and say it's not going to happen. You will not be allowed to do that and take a real stand against that. They let it stay there and the next thing they corrupted the entire assembly. Now you see what happened here. We're looking at when we started, we'll say this one man committed this abominable sin. One man. But behind him followed others who probably then went up to the temple prostitutes or out to prostitutes within the community. They didn't take their father's wife, but here they went out there. Then others committed adultery against Christ by getting into idolatry. And others then began to debase because it was the same type of thing. You see, the heathen religious ceremonies were many times drunken orgies. So now they had brought in the same spirit. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose and play. They brought the same spirit into the communion. So one was shamed because he had no food. And the Bible says the other glutted himself and became drunken in the communion service. Drinking just glass after glass of wine. Ah, the blood of Christ. Give me some more of the flesh of Christ. And they just gorged themselves. While others who had nothing sat there with nothing and just were shamed. What we read in the book of Revelation are really prophecies concerning the end times. They were not written for the sake of the church of Thyatira. They were written to be an example to us for all time, that in every time Satan is working to implant in the church those things which are contrary to sound doctrine. Now, with that in mind, will you turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Timothy and the fourth chapter. Read that last week, and I think there should be some more intelligent understanding of it as we read it now. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Now here we have this same terrible happening, falling away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You've got to understand whispering in my ear continually. And believe me, there have been many times when I've been reading this book, and that's the, that's the hideous thing about it. When I've been reading this book, that my mind, because of my old training in the world, my mind gets going on some weird religious abstraction out here. And the next thing I'm, I wonder if, I I rebuke that thought. I will not take that into my mind. I will not have that kind of thinking. But it would be so easy for me to let myself, I wonder if, now the Bible talks about these vain speculations where we follow after angels and we look after, I wonder if uh, this, and here our mind just goes off and off and off instead of saying, look, this is my book of instruction and I will stay with this book of instruction. The Spirit of God that will keep me clean, I will stay with the cleanliness of the Holy Spirit. But our mind begins to get, if I did not take my mind and bring it back, when things begin to come into the church, believe me, I am tempted. So that's why I'm saying to the eldership here, I know the hardness, the hard thing that it sometimes is for us to do that 
when somebody you dearly love commits some real evil act and you know you have to go and deal with that. It's just like you say, oh, Lord, why can't you just come now, Lord Jesus, and take us all to heaven and <clears throat> eliminate this problem? Because you go and deal with that. You go see that person, you go deal with that situation. And I tell you, my beloved brothers and sisters, I know how hard it is to deal with what has to be dealt with. I could be the greatest offender in that. If I just did not believe what was in this book, I think I would say, well, you know, I'm not the judge, and I, the Bible says we are the judge. I can't judge a man's heart, but I can judge the action. If the action is wrong, I have to go say, that act is wrong, you must stop it. Say, okay. Now, as long as you understand that, then you understand these demonic spirits are constantly whispering in our ears these weird thoughts. And the problem, see, is not that these demons do this because they're going to do it. The problem is that we pay attention to them. It says paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Not that they do it. That's going on all the time. But that we pay attention to it and say, well, maybe it's this way. All right. How will these things come about? Chiefly by means of the hypocrisy of liars. They work up a real powerful doctrinal presentation based on half-truths or no-truths. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron men who forbid marriage. And I assure you this one thing right now. If you take Paul's writings out of the New Testament, you could then take the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the basis of them forbid marriage. That is not what the Lord said. He made it clear that every man does not have this gift. But I tell you something, you could take the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and forbid marriage and do a pretty effective job for someone who did not minutely scrutinize what the Lord Jesus said, but especially if he did not have the teachings of Paul, see, because the Bible says that in the last days there are going to be those who rise up and expressly forbid marriage, and that's going to be believed by some part of the church. How large a part, I don't know. I hope it's not very large, but I believe it would not be in here unless it's going to be quite a large part. Doctrines of demons, hypocrisy of liars, forbid marriage, and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. Now turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy, and we'll look there at the third chapter. And you see again the qualities that will come here, but realize this, the last days, difficult times will come. Reason, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. The Bible says these things are idolatry, to love yourself, to love money, to be greedy is idolatry. As a result, they are boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, goes on to describe all of those things. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness. See, while all of these terrible things are going on in their lives, they're still holding to a form of godliness, saying we still wish to go to church, we still wish to have our proper membership, we still wish to be known as Christians, we still wish to be known, but all the time their lives are full of these terrible pollutions, and not only that, but they're leading others in the same way exactly. For among them are those who enter into households, and there's a household at peace, and who do they captivate? Weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, something that's been happening with increasing regularity in churches, well, it's a, a shameful and terrible thing. A man greatly noted in the gospel, just 
recently this year came to light that he had been living an adulterous relationship. Several years ago, back on the East Coast, two men, men of God, men of renown, men of repute, fell into an adulterous relationship. Men and women in the churches seeing these things and seeing some of these people actually get away from Now, the interesting thing about some of these men when they committed adultery, admitted it, but many of the church people said, well, man, you know, human, people are weak, and we like him anyhow, so he should remain in the pulpit. And, we, and some of those men remained in the pulpit. Others, of course, the people rose up and said, you must step down, and so forth and so on. But the point that I'm making, these men who should have known better fell into these situations. This one particular one that I'm thinking of back on the East Coast, this relationship went on for seven or eight years before it was finally discovered. And when the man discovered it, the husband in the household had no real knowledge of it, his own testimony, at least. I, you know, I, I, say, I don't understand how that kind of thing could go on, but it did go on. Either there was looseness in the home or weakness in the home or something, but here this man crept into this household and led captive this silly woman, laden down with sins, and for years and years continued this adulterous relationship, and then on Sunday stand up and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you say, how can these terrible things happen? My brother, sister, we have to be clearly warned from the word of God that these demonic spirits are constantly laying out things to us. How about this? How about this? They don't know where you're going to fall. See, it isn't that they're, they're have knowledge like God has knowledge, knows every weakness that you have. They pretty well know about what your weaknesses are, but grace surrounds you in many areas. But the way they are, if you get your mind off the Word of God and get it on the things of the world, they're constantly, it's like this, they don't know which one is going to work, but it's like this. How about this? How about this? How about this? Look at this. Here's a chance. Think of this. How about this? And that warfare is going on continually, and if we don't recognize that warfare that's going on, we just, oh no, there's no warfare, everything is fine, I... We've got to realize we're in warfare against a determined enemy that is out to destroy us if he possibly can. And our minds, if we're not girded in the loins of our mind, then what's going to happen is we're going to leave whole open places there and something is going to drop in there and the circumstances are going to be right and next thing we're led into that kind of situation. James or John rightly says, little children, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. Difficult times will come. These men enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now notice what these men do. Now as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. Now these are scriptures we read last week. But I read them again for your admonition, lest you become deceived and think that these concern some other church or some other time or some other people. So I take time then to show you that the Corinthian church, I can show you in other churches the names of the New Testament, these things had crept in even while the apostles were alive. And brothers and sisters, they're not going to be less able to creep into our congregation. As a matter of fact, they have crept into this church. This whole movement at times caused me to go and deal with situations that were extremely painful for me to deal with. And I expect, but I pray God it will not be so, but I expect that in the future it will continue to be like that unless all of us grow up in the Lord, become extremely mature, make up our minds we are going to fight to the last drop of our blood if need be, 
but not allow things like this to happen in this church or in the church which is in Humboldt County. Now, I believe that God is going to bring about a church in this county which will be a tremendous power if we give ourselves to making it a clean, right church. I wish I had time, but I do not have time, because I intended to get into uh, Second Peter, but I just will not be able to do it. But I just want to take a couple of things that I wish you'd look at. Now, we read these scriptures, but I want to go over them and then start pointing out very important points to you from them. But take a look at the second chapter of Second Peter. And this is the thing that I have to look at very strongly. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Now here's a living apostle speaking to a living group of Christians. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, final thing, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. But notice this final thing. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. In other words, that judgment is coming down upon them, but they've got that space in there which they're doing an evil work, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels of sin, but cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness, so forth, and did not spare the ancient world, neither will he spare them. But the point that I'm making out, I'm not worried so much about them if they've given themselves over to that kind of evil. What I am worried about, and always will preach to you, I'm worried about you who have not given yourselves over to that kind of evil. And I'm worried about my elders, strong men becoming stronger, but in my charges, they always be strong, so that when these types of things come, they can recognize it and take swift action against it. And you, as fellow Christians, when they have to take swift action, and they will, that you do not be overwhelmed because these people are your friends, or because they're popular, or because they're moneyed, or they have whatever. We were getting a broader basic ministry by far, and that means the doors are going to be open on many, many sides. And into that, because we're bringing about a New Testament pattern of church, I believe that with all my heart, that Satan is going to enter in, bring those men in if he possibly can. The Bible says they come in secretly. They don't appear like that at the beginning. And then pretty soon they're exposed. And the elders will see it. Or some of you will see it. And I pray when, if they do not repent and have to be dealt with, that you have the courage to stand behind the elders at all times and say, listen, we are with you, brothers. We are with you. Stand and protect us. That's your job. Work with us. And don't make their jobs any harder than it is already. Hallelujah. All right, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just pray now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that, Lord, we prepare ourselves for these end days in which we are living. Lord, on the one hand, we see the wonderful work you're doing in bringing the churches together in a wonderful unity. And we know that that's going to continue on because of the prayer of our Lord Jesus. Father, it's going to be answered. But Lord, on the other hand, we also see some very severe warnings which you've given us concerning the last days, in which, Lord, if we don't take a right stand in those areas, then, Father, the church can be corrupted and polluted and finally destroyed. And, Father, I pray that we never be such weak men that we cannot stand up for what is right and for what is truth and war against those things. 
I pray, Lord, that this people here, there will not even be one of them, Lord, that if wrong teaching or wrong doctrine came in, Lord, they would never be such as that they would desire to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, but they would always desire the Word of God, pure and unvarnished, truthful, Lord, ministered in a proper way. Now, Father, I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we continue to build and build with a pure heart and a pure spirit and a pure mind until the day that you come back to this earth and take us from it. Grant that, Father, we ask in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen.